Welcome to this episode of Like a Glove, the startup podcast about product market fit. I'm your host, Pat East, and we're recording here in the podcast studio from the mill in Bloomington, Indiana. Today's guest is Jason Whitney from IU Ventures. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. So before we get into product market fit, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what specifically you do at IU Ventures? Sure. Um, been engaged with the startup community in Indiana for quite a while, probably seven or eight years. Currently Associate Vice President at IU Ventures and Executive Director of the IU Angel Network. So we work with high net worth individuals who are trying to connect back to startups that have some Indiana University DNA. Cool. And what does Indiana University DNA mean? Yeah, so uh, a variety of different things. It could be a faculty member who's trying to start a startup company based on the research that they're doing. It could be an alumni who has started something all across the country. It could be a parent of a current student. It could be a company that's not affiliated with the university that's trying to commercialize some intellectual property that's owned by the university. Gotcha. And so your job is to engage angels to invest in potential startups, but also through IU Ventures specifically, you've got a philanthropic fund that invests in startups, right? Yeah, so we do some traditional venture investment on our own, but also provide opportunities for our alumni to help engage and, and try and help commercialize some of that research, become customers, advisors, technical support folks for those, those startup companies. And so you see a lot of deals yeah. then, right? So you've been in this position for two, two, years. two years now? Yeah, yeah. So how many deals would you say you see a year? I mean, certainly in the first year, you guys were going at breakneck yeah, speed. Yeah, there was a, a backlog of deals that needed to be reviewed. I mean, we've, we're up over 325 deals in the last 24 months. So, I mean, we're 100, 120 deals a year probably is probably our steady flow going forward. I mean, we kind of scaled back those efforts a little bit because I think we got out over our skis uh, and we're having to now manage the portfolio that we've developed. But um, as we start to ramp that back up with the development of our angel network, we'll see a lot more deals. Gotcha. And so that first year was plowing through that backlog and also establishing that you guys were real credible investors, right? That you had a portfolio and you had the wherewithal and expertise to actually invest. Yeah, we were just trying to prove we could do deals, but also help to create support and syndicate networks for especially the faculty members who didn't have the network that we had around the country to help bring money back to the state and to to help support those companies. Awesome. So part of the reason I wanted to have you on was because we've had a lot of startup CEOs on so far, and I really wanted to get a perspective from the other side of the table. And so what's your definition of product market fit? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think that's the point when, when you're out sitting across the table from the customer and you're not having to convince them that your product has value and can benefit their company and they're actually wanting you to come engage in their company or telling their friends about your service so that they can help be advocates for your sales process. Gotcha. So in your mind, it's an easy conversation with the prospect. They easily get, hey, why does this product or service solve my pain point? Gotcha. Are there things they say in the conversation that make you kind of come to that conclusion? Or is it just kind of a more overall feeling of, okay, yeah, this is a this is an easy conversation to have? I think a lot of times when we're talking with startup founders, we can tell that they've reached that point based on how long the sales cycle is, especially in those those B2B SaaS sales industries. And, and if they're a year and a half process or, or they're selling to the wrong person, they're trying to push it into the wrong place of the company, we can get a good idea of the fact that they've got product market fit. But if they're talking about how nice it is to go into a company and, and be able to engage with those folks, then we know that they're there. And how do you know if a sales cycle is long? I mean, if it's a year and a half for most companies, that's going to be long. But if you are, I don't know, trying to sell a rocket to the U.S. government, right? 
a year and a half is not too long, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially a lot of the companies we deal with sell into the healthcare space, and if you've ever tried to sell into a, a hospital nuts. chain, it's ridiculously long, and you can't figure out who the right person is to sell to. But if it's something that's a sales enablement product, it's probably a much shorter time cycle because it's something that's directly driving revenue. If it's something that's on the purchasing side, it could be a lot longer because they don't see that direct ROI back from the the purchase of that your product. Gotcha. So the length of sales cycle is driven a little bit by the type of product you have and how big their pain point is. So oh, that's yeah. part of it. And what I also heard was maybe it's the the right or wrong person too. If you're trying to push into the wrong department, you're pushing a sales enablement product yep. to purchasing. Yep. You're going to have problems. Yeah. I mean, we see that all the time. That people are selling to the wrong person in an organization and struggling to get their product into the market. And it's really just a byproduct of the fact that they don't know who they're supposed to be selling to, especially in that hospital market. A lot of times companies will say, the doctors love it. I'm selling it to the doctors. But at the end of the day, the doctors aren't the one who's cutting the check for your product. It's that finance manager down the road. Or they discount the fact that it might have to engage with the operations people or building maintenance people who also need to be on board. And they're not selling to them either. So folks are selling to the end user, the yeah, doctor right. in that case, but they're not selling to the person actually who has control of the yeah, budget. Yeah. So the messaging is totally different, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And so in that case, it's you have to have different messaging, a different approach depending upon who you're talking to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you work with a lot of startups. You see a lot of deals. You said you see them selling to the wrong person quite a bit. What's the most common mistake you see them making about product market fit specifically? Yeah, probably a couple of things. One, that they think that their product is the end-all be-all solution to that problem space. And they're not willing to listen to the feedback from the customer or potential customer to help modify the product to make it fit better into that space. But also another area where I think there is a, a mistake being made is they might have a really good solution, but they're discounting what's currently the solution for that customer. So it could be that you're selling an enterprise level B2B SaaS product and you're ignoring the fact that they're currently addressing that problem with two different softwares that they have year to year contracts on that are cost prohibitive for them to then bring in your product. So although they may love your product, the finances of it might not work at this point in time for them to be able to bring it on board. So the switching cost in that instance is going to be too high for them to do anything right, right. now. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's kind of a hidden cost, right? You just don't assume that that's there when you're going in to talk to your potential customers and they could be your best friend and, and your best customer ever. But the money just doesn't add up. Gotcha. And and the first part of your answer was, uh, you said, you know, folks think they're kind of the end all be all for that particular problem space, but they don't listen to feedback. Yeah. And so are they, you know, for startup founders out there, how do you distinguish between, okay, I heard this feedback and I dismiss it because I think I have a different vision of how the world should work or how sure. this industry should work versus I'm just stubborn and I'm just not going to listen, period. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where you have to trust your customers and those initial people that you're putting your product in their hands. You have to know that, that they're good stewards of what you're doing and they're your friends and they're giving you honest feedback. And, you know, if at the end of the day you're too stubborn to listen to them, you probably need to move on and do something else. But if you're not directly using that product in your business and they are, I mean, you kind of have to roll with them. Right. You have to listen to them because ultimately they're going to be the ones that cut a check to you. They, they right? determine your success, right? It's not yep. whether you whether you think you got a really cool product, it's whether they think you have a really cool product. Does your perspective on kind of this uh, this common mistake in product market fit, does it change from industry to industry, software to non-software companies? And do you notice any patterns or is it is it pretty much the same across any startup? 
Yeah, no, it, we do work with some folks who are outside of the software space who maybe have a, a medical device or a durable good. Obviously, it's much harder for them to produce a product change it based on feedback, get it back out into the market. It's much more cost prohibitive for them to put it in a lot of people's hands because then you got to physically make a lot of whatever that that is. So much harder in that space than it is in the software space where you can just deploy it out a bunch of different places. And so does that, to take a, a little bit of a tangent here, is that where technologies like 3D printing really come into play oh, where yeah. you can do one-offs? Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of places that's true. Yeah, you can you can 3D print something overnight and have it back out in somebody's hands and, and iterate on it rather rapidly, but it's not always possible, right? So which startups do you see that don't make this mistake? I mean, what's kind of the characteristics of the founders where they're willing to listen to customers and they, you know, they think their product is really good, but they don't believe believe it's kind of the end all be all. You know, I think that question more than the the reliance on the customers and trusting the customer, I think that comes back to mentors and advisors that that founder oh, has really? surrounded themselves with. And have you been working in a silo this entire time while you developed your product and then you start pushing it out into market? So, you know, it's been your baby for however long this development process has been. But if you've surrounded yourself with talented, experienced mentors and advisors who have challenged you to get outside your comfort zone and have asked you questions throughout the process, even if they're not potential customers for you, I think those are the people who are more successful and are less likely to make this product market fit error or take this process out years and years and years where you're, you're already done at that point. That's a really good perspective. So if somebody has a mentor on board at the beginning of their startup, they're probably more open to hearing feedback, but also they're they're getting more they're getting regular feedback, feedback yep. and they're getting a different perspective. And presumably the mentor has not just general startup experience, but they have domain experience, right? Yep. And so they can give them true and real feedback in addition to what their customers are saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think the folks, you know, especially in our ecosystem that that are open to asking for help are definitely the ones who are more successful. Can you talk maybe a little bit about or maybe give some examples where you saw really great product market fit in either just a startup in general that you've seen or specifically any of the companies you've invested in? Well, I guess uh, other than I don't want to name names, name names. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I a company like Slack that that is highly regarded as having a, a great uh, model of product market fit where they got it out to a bunch of people. They actively listened to that user feedback and then it spread virally throughout that community is a great example of product market fit. And, you know, I was reading a story not too long ago about the founder of Slack who was the person who was listening to Twitter to see the comments, right? Personally on Twitter, responding to people's concerns with the product and then able to take that back to the product development team. I think it's a really interesting one. I mean, on the the bad side, you, you got people who thought they had great product market fit just because they were the first person to market. And then in reality, you were just the first person there. You really, it was a terrible product, but you were just the first person who identified that problem and had a solution for it as, you know, that, that creates some problems as well, but didn't actually listen to any of their customers. So the CEO really needs to be the one at the very beginning of the startup, for sure. But they need to be the one listening to customers, not just the product manager or, you know, whoever's head of product. Right. Right. Yeah. Because those are the, that's the person that's going to make your first couple sales anyway. Right. So they definitely need to be the person who's out there and listening to the customers so that they can better reflect their product back to those people. So the person closest to the customer who kind of has the ability to take that feedback and to really listen to the customer and, and make actual changes. But let's shift a little bit to a subset of product market fit and talk specifically about market size. Ah, the dreaded market size. <laughs> you know, from an investor's perspective, when a startup is pitching you for their beachhead market, that initial 
initial market, how do they make it small enough so that they can target enough of the right folks to give them feedback on product market fit, but it's not so small that you turn off a potential investor and they get anchored on, hey, this is a super small market and just tune you out the rest of the pitch. Yeah, I mean, if you come into our investment committee with a really small market, we're going to bang on you. And if you come in with a really big market, we're going to bang, bang on, on you, you, right? So it's like, we're, I, I understand the the quandary from the person on the other side of the table. Like, what am I supposed to say here that doesn't get me beat up on? But I, I think the right answer there is, I would rather you come in with that smaller beachhead market but come in with a plan to show me what you're going to learn from that small market and how you're going to then transition that into the larger market. And maybe it's the midsize market and then the larger market. But what's the timeline to expand out into those markets? And, and what, how are you going to transition that, what you've learned into those other spaces? So from your perspective, it's less about the size of the market, but A, what are you going to learn and how are you going to transition from one market to the next, right? Yeah. You can't just say, I'm going to do it. You got to right, have a, right. an actual plan. Why are you going to that next market and how are you going to leverage those initial relationships to get into that next market? And the time frame to do all that, right? Yeah. And that fits into how much capital you need to raise right. and use of funds, yeah. right? And so that that's a really important piece, that, that time frame. Nobody ever comes in with that slide either. Really? I, I've never seen anybody with a really well-developed slide that reflects that. That reflects the time the frame? Time, or? That reflects the time frame and, and why they're going from market to market. And so with that, I, I mean, I'm kind of stunned. I mean, if somebody had that slide, or that, was that going to be good for you? Or is that because I, nobody else does it. that? I'd rather, I'd much rather somebody bring that slide in, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, we're early stage investors, and I would rather know that you at least have a roadmap. We're all, we all know we're going to pivot at some point, right? right. So I'm okay with pivoting. I, we pivot as an organization ourselves, but we like to, like to know where those pivot points could be and what the milestones are that we're going to use to determine if we need to pivot. And so from your perspective, you'd want to see somebody draw a line in the sand and say, hey, this is how I'm going to pivot or how I'm going to transition from one market to the next. And maybe it's going to end up being wrong based upon what we learn over the next one or two years. But you'd rather them draw a line in the sand and know that you're at least thinking about it. Yeah. Right. That's probably the the best way to put it is you're at least thinking about it. Gotcha. Yeah. How do you look at it as a as an angel investor? You know, I don't know that. You know, I guess now I'm thinking back on all the pitches I've seen. I don't know that I've ever seen somebody talk about specifically the transitions from one market to the next. Like they'll always have here's market size A, market size C, right? But they don't talk about the transitions. What do we hope to learn, at least from the beachhead market? You know, once you get to the second or third market, you know, who knows what you're going to learn there, right? But but yeah, that initial market, I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that before. No, no. Yeah, they just kind of assume they're going to continue to grow big. That's exactly and, right. I'm just going to, I'm going to have this growth curve and I'm going to stay on it. And this is the next logical market that I'm going to go to. Okay. It's just a guess. And this is going to be the only round we ever raise because we're definitely going to be profitable <laughs> by the end of it. Right. I heard that earlier this week. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so for you, it really doesn't, it doesn't matter the size of your beachhead market uh, doesn't really matter in relation to that final ultimate market. I mean, it really matters about what the transition is, what you learn, and what the time frame is. Yeah, yeah. I don't. It doesn't matter to me what size that market is, but I just want to know that you got an idea of what that market is. It's a lot easier. That I see a lot of people who say, uh, "My product is for everyone. Everyone is my customer." I'm like, okay, well, please get out of my office. Like that. Let's let's narrow that down. And and I think that that kind of flow that we just talked about um, will help to address 
just that. And so for those folks who do truly believe their product is for everyone, do you spend time convincing them that they need to start with a smaller market or are you just like, nope, I'm going to pass on this deal and find somebody who already understands that? No, I I think it's important as an investor to give that accurate feedback back to the companies and to talk to them about why you would initially not be a yes because of an aspect like that and to try and work with them through them on that process. We're doing everybody a disservice if we don't do if that. If you don't, if you don't teach them yep. and and don't tell them what you're looking for, that's yep. fair. Yeah. And so hopefully they'll listen to you and make some changes. How much time has to pass, and how much does the company need to change in order for you to to maybe invest at that point? Yep. Yeah. I mean, those are all fair questions coming back to us from the entrepreneur, and obviously there's a lot of ambiguity there that can take place. But I think for the founders, they should ask those questions when people are saying no, because most people are going to want to provide that feedback because it's it's better for the next investor and it, it helps us develop a relationship because this is not going to be your first startup, right? So the next time you come in, I want to have a good working relationship with you to be able to invest in your next company. Even as an institutional investor, you're really looking for, okay, this isn't, I don't want just this deal. I want you. And I want to make sure that whenever your next startup comes around, that we teach you and educate you on on what we're looking for so that we do get in that next deal. Yeah, for sure. It's, you're going to have another one. And either I want to get in on it or one of my friends wants to get in on it, right? So (laughs) let's, let's help everybody out. Gotcha. You know, if a company doesn't have product market fit, how do you know whether you need to change your product or market or both? I mean, kind of what's the what's the thought process on approaching that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you at the beginning of the product market fit process, you've identified who your customers are and what market you want to go towards. Right. So you, you've done your research. You you know where you're trying to target your product. If you have a nice working relationship with those folks who have your beta product in their hands, if it's not going well over time and you've changed the product a little bit and, and it still isn't working, I would try and uncover with those folks, is this a nice to have or a must have, right? Is the problem even appropriate for the people in this market? Like, am I just shooting at a blank target? So if you're able to ask the right questions with those folks and uncover if they ever really actually need to solve this problem, even though it's an identified problem and the answer is no, then it might be time to move on to another market if you've, uh, if you've yeah. done some small tweaks. Gotcha. And so it's it's a nice to have product to, to fix this pain point or a must have. And I think probably some of that goes back to what you said earlier about, hey, there's other problems in the market or other problems with this client that that maybe I didn't see, like, hey, they're on a one or two year contract or maybe actually my product is better than than what they're doing now. But the cost of moving is just too much, right? Your product's only 5% better, but there's going to be 100% switching costs. Yeah, there's a lot of variables there that, that are outside of your control. And so do you right size your market, right? If somebody, you know, if most of the folks that you're trying to sell to are in one or two year contracts and or somehow you figure yep. that out, that that's kind of industry standard, do you, do you right size your market so that, okay, it's literally half of what I thought it was going to be because I can't sell to some of yeah. these folks that they're, they're just not legally they're, <laughs> ready they're, yet. They're not potential customers. Yeah, yeah. you have to, right? Tell me, what do you think is the single biggest thing folks can do to get better at product market fit? You know, I think it would be 
constantly be seeking it. Um, even if you are close to the point where you think you're there, um, you have to continue to engage with those customers and your trusted partners to be able to always iterate your product, even when you're in the market. Because just because you found a fit today, it doesn't mean tomorrow some kid in Palo Alto hasn't come up with something that's even better than what you've got. And he's already knocking on the door of your customers. He or she is knocking on the door of your customers. So I would say to be better at it, you have to do it more, just like everything we do. Um, and you have to continually ask those questions of your customers and your prospective customers. And so at one point, you know, once you've kind of found that initial product market fit, I mean, how how often do you need to keep iterating, do you think, to, yeah. to make sure you still have it? You know, because you have to focus on other things like sales, growing sales, <laughs> right? You can't just say, hey, let me keep making this product perfect. I mean, yeah. maybe that's the right mindset, but can you functionally and practically do that? I mean, obviously it's cost prohibitive to always be doing that, but I think it's it's on all of us to set a routine and to constantly push out those updates to help better the product, whether it's a quarterly update or a monthly update to, to continue to do that. Gotcha. And so that's one big theme I've heard through all of these interviews is set up some sort of structure so that you're constantly working on product market fit and that it's something that is not necessarily at the forefront, but it's something that you can't forget about. Right. So it's either, hey, 15 percent of so and so's time is going to be focused on product market fit or set up a a monthly update. Right. Or X number of customer interviews every month um, so that it kind of forces it's a forcing mechanism to make sure you don't forget about them. And I don't hear founders talk about that aspect of it a lot of the the ongoing maintenance. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to do that for our cars and our homes and we need to do it for our business as well to continue to stay on top of that stuff and not let things get away from us. That's a really good perspective. There's kind of maintenance for product market fit, right? Yep. So you've kind of initially built the house, right? Yeah. And then you can just say, all right, I'm going to live in it and it's going to last <laughs> me the next 50 years. You got to continually fix things and yeah. tweak things. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Fun. All right. That does it for this episode, Jason. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, what's, thanks. What's the best way folks can get in touch with you? IUVentures.com, probably the best way. We have opportunities to engage there, and uh, we spend a lot of time on the road talking to folks uh, across the country. So we're happy to, to meet up when we're doing that. And especially if you're an IU alum who's yes. a founder, yeah. you definitely want to talk, right? Or you're in a warm weather place in a winter month. We're happy to meet <laughs> with you. All right. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate you coming thanks, on. Like a Glove is a production of The Mill, a co-working and business incubator space in Bloomington, Indiana. Our mission is to launch and accelerate high-potential companies, and our vision is to become the center of co-working and entrepreneurship in Indiana. You can learn more about The Mill at dimensionmill.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back every other Monday for new episodes.